Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me well in the window? Yes. Anyone having trouble hearing me online? Okay, I'm not seeing any indications. Great. <clears throat> um, well, thank you so much for, for letting me join you in Austin and on the Cloud Sangha today. Uh, I feel the grace of your presence here in Albuquerque, where it's been very windy and dusty, and and we've and we feel the uh, effects of the fires that are affecting so many people in northern New Mexico and elsewhere. Uh, so I'm going to be reading from a document. So I'm going to actually not be able to see the the uh, the Zoom window for a while. So I apologize for that. I want to say thanks to Joan Harmon for officiating for this morning's Zazen uh, Kinhen and service, and to uh, Maria for being the cloud cloud Zendo monitor, and Ann Lipscomb for keeping time. Maria, could you read the quote from Trudy Johnston that you sent to me in chat earlier? Because it says in a sentence what I hope to convey in my talk. Um, can I embrace the impossibility of knowing as liberation? All right. Please hold that in mind because uh, my talk uh, really has a focus, uh, no self or emptiness. Uh, and the way that uh, this concept or these concepts are, are talked about in Mahayana Buddhism and Zen in particular and, uh, and I'm going to talk about some personal experiences uh, how, of how emptiness is actually full of everything. And I'm going to take some seeming detours along the way to talk about equanimity, neuroanatomy, and compassion. But I promise to come back and to talk about what uh, Maria just read, the, the notion that... Um, we can embrace impossibility of knowing as part of the path, at least, to liberation. Um, I started sitting at Appamata with a very clear and very self-centered motive some 15 years ago or so. <coughs> I had told Flint that I wanted to stop being blown around by my, my emotions, and he suggested that uh, I... Uh, that I come and sit regularly at Appamata, so I started. Um, I wanted to be strong. This was my motive. I wanted to be strong, steady, mature, not weak and childish, as I felt. Uh, I hoped I could gain skills that would make me an adequate father, a good son, a more productive worker, and, and all those sorts of things. But mostly, I really wanted stability amid all my reactive emotions. I thought I could get rid of bad emotions and bulk up good ones. I could not have articulated it this way at the time, but what I really wanted was something more like equanimity. Uh, now, as everyone here knows, training in equanimity begins within a few seconds of sitting in an upright posture, even in the prettiest room and in the comfiest possible chair or pose. 
<clears throat> a few seconds after sitting, you find, or I find, that a foot is out of position, or my neck angle isn't quite right and needs to be improved, or it's a little too hot, or just slightly too cold, or I get an itch somewhere. For me, early on, uh, there was an endless parade, one dissatisfaction elbowing the others aside for attention after another. I had quit, in fact, meditating for several years after trying it at Austin Zen Center because I could not keep up with how fast that process of, of dissatisfaction was unfolding. And uh, my conditioning told me that it was all my fault, uh, that I was simply becoming more reactive, not less so. <clears throat> Only after working with Peg and Flint did I actually come to realize, not just think, that I had the capacity to see these transient states and my reactions and to hold them lightly, even affectionately, without getting caught up in believing them. Uh, as an aside, it's only when I started uh, working on this talk that I realized uh, that with guidance from our teachers back then, I was accessing something that met the demand I had showed up with at Appamata, which was mindfulness of present moment experience had given me some sense of equanimity, or at least the patience to let things unfold on their own inside my head. And it's only in the last couple of years that I have let go of the idea that starting with a self-centered goal as a beginner, or at the beginning of any given moment as a more experienced meditator, is in any way bad. That as, as Flint has said, and as um, uh, Dick Schwartz, the, the uh, founder of IFS has said, there are no bad parts and there's no bad starting point. So that's the end of the first detour. Now I want to talk about the experience of encountering no self or emptiness and how remarkably simple it seemed to be. Um, not long after starting sitting uh, with guidance from Peg, I did some experiments following up on advice that I had read in the Buddhist scriptures. The Buddha suggested that one could examine the evidence of one's senses on which I at least was relying for my conviction that I was a solid, abiding, separate self apart from everything and everyone around me. One could examine that evidence and after just following some simple steps, uh, could uh, see that there was no, in fact, abiding self at all. Oh, sure, I thought, but Peg encouraged me. Uh, I had been able to notice that itches and pains wouldn't actually kill me and that they didn't actually usually last all that long. They seemed to have a life of their own and flowed like, a, like waves. Eventually, I got to where I could register that I had other sensations besides complaints. Uh, and scanning my body to notice the way that I was ignoring the information processing that was going on, you know, neutral sensations, even pleasant ones, instead of only complaints, that turned out to be kind of fun. Uh, nevertheless, the sense of a solid self remained pretty abiding. Another discovery that I find important, I found that every perception and every thought formation that I had was arriving in my consciousness already wrapped up in what the Buddha some 2,500 years ago described as feeling tone. Um, 
I found that I simply couldn't stop that process. I, that, you know, if I felt something in my toe, it came to me as either good or bad or neutral. And I couldn't uh, stop that process, but I didn't have to believe it, particularly about the negative ones. Uh, one time I sat and I was focusing on sounds and I remembered the Buddha's advice uh, to just follow the sounds and watch the process by which they unfold. And I experienced what the Buddha had predicted, that my faculty of hearing was operating on its own. I couldn't stop it or securely identify where in my mind-body connection it was, it was coming to be processed and, and then being passed into my consciousness. I felt like I was realizing something true instead of just thinking about it. Also, I felt like I had just looked over a cliff, but I wasn't really scared. I talked to Peg about this experience and asked if it indicated some kind of progress. She said she was glad that I had asked and she gently reminded me that grasping onto the idea of progress could be a hindrance and also that wanting to do so was not unique to me. She indicated that having experiential evidence of how body and mind actually meet was a good starting point for some further exploration. And she said, now you know, at least in this one instance, the Buddha was onto something. He was right. Uh, ever since, I have carried on with these experiences or these explorations. I follow my heartbeat, my breathing, the flow of blood through my kidneys, and the surges of anger or grief or sexual energy that come through my body when I can quiet down enough to let them register. And I find that none of them are actually me. They're more like homeostatic processes arising out of my body. What I thought of as me had more in common with the thermostat making the air conditioner at Appamata turn on and off than I realized before. More equanimity was required around this experience. And, and I believe that, the, that these were actual experiences uh, of no self. I hope you're still with me. Now I will take a detour into being surprised by connection and compassion. And then I'll talk for a while about the very little that I've learned about the enormous subject of neurobiology. It will connect, I promise. And I'll come back to equanimity and eventually return to emptiness and no self. Uh, one day, um, I felt in my body with gratitude, the support being given to me by the steady presence of the people around me. I, and I intuited too, that my presence was helpful to them. And this was, you know, surprisingly, a surprise to me. Um, for a while, it was like a fog had lifted and I could actually look around and see more than my self-centered dream, you know? Um, and then, you know, the fog came back. So I talked about this with, with Peg and uh, she suggested reading a book, uh, relatively new at the time, called Buddha's Brain uh, by Richard Hansen and uh, Richard Mendius. Um, you probably know it. It's a very readable introduction to what neuroscience and the evidence of evolution say about our body-mind interaction with the world. And, and how Buddhism um, 
can unlock some of the secrets of it and be in, and how Buddhism can be informed by uh, what the science has to say to lead us to self-compassion, for example. Long story short, like all of our bodies, our brains are evolved organs that embody a series of historical legacies, from lizard and fish to mammals to primates. Um, in very rough terms, the inner parts where uh, feeling tone arises um, and where we recognize danger and judge good and bad things, etc. Uh, those parts are the earliest uh, and the most powerful parts of our brain. Um, they also originate the drives to maintain ourselves and to, pro to procreate, uh, and they are extremely fast acting. Uh, the mammalian part of our brain, the kind of middle part, helps us connect with others in our species. Uh, it's home to our feelings for our family and our tribe, the in-group. And it, they are also home to the aggression that animates uh, humans' habitual responses to people in outgroups. And to the pervasive anxiety that living in this world uh, seems to generate all the time. The frontal lobes and the thin cortex are the latest uh, evolved parts of our brain. They're part of the primate brain that we share with other great apes and um, other uh, uh, types of primates. Um, and they are also the slowest. It's how we can think about things and we can hold things. We can, we can have an impulse within our body, an impulse within our mind, and then think, oh, wait, I don't have to believe that. That's, that is a process that's happening in a physical part of our bodies. Um, those, so these, the, the cortex uh, and the, the frontal lobes are uh, great at using language and symbols, uh, but they are prone to being overridden by the inner brain structures and to being swept up in emotion and uh, uh, particularly uh, grasping and fear. The other thing that they point out, that, that Menzies and Hansen uh, point out, is that our brains are actually um, not just a, 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 a series of structures, but that the substrate of those structures is incredibly weird. Um, there are billions of neuron cells sending electrical signals and chemical signals across hundreds of billions of branching pathways. Uh, they're coordinating sensory inputs and, uh, and, and keeping up with demands for homeostasis from our heart, our lungs, our kidneys, our hormones, um, and dozens of other systems that we, can, that we hardly ever sense. The whole thing is more like a thunderstorm, they say, than like a sensible mechanism for directing a body and, and having a mind and a self. Um, I was really interested in one thing that they pointed out and at the end of all this discussion of this, this evolution and the, and the basic weirdness that, that underlies it. Um, at, at the kind of tippy top of this evolutionary structure, uh, one of the last evolved things uh, was structures in our brains called the anterior cingulate cortex, 
they, which are these parts that are located kind of uh, on either side in our temples, and within them, what are called spindle cells, which allow us to actually feel what another being is feeling, to take that feeling within us, and um, to do the things that seem like the most human capacities. Um, <clears throat> what they what they say, and this is so striking to me, is that by sitting in mindful awareness, you know feeling what's going on, but not judging it, we are actually uh, physically directing resources to the anterior cingulate cortices, and that that activity fills, uh, begins to, to uh, sprinkle energy into the spindle cells, building them up, you know, strengthening them. So by sitting, staring at a wall, we are, in fact, cultivating compassion in a very physical neurological, physiological sense. It's, and that's a, an amazing thought and an amazing fact to me. So sitting zazen actually physically leads to the capacity for sympathetic joy, compassion, uh, and loving kindness. to switch to another piece of paper here, sorry. All right, so I branched off in several areas, but I'm gonna try and bring them all together. We know that being caught in the self-centered dream, there's only suffering, in the beautiful poetic phrase. Neuroscience shows how the components of that self-centered dream arise out of our evolved and completely weird electrochemical brains and out of the homeostatic demands of our bodies. We, they, they enforce a feeling of self, but when examined, they show themselves as not self. They are empty. What Buddha's brain suggests is to me, and th this is the shocking thing, is that our so-called higher impulses, the mental processes that give us more space and freedom around ignorance, greed, and aversion, themselves, they arise out of the same energy flows in our nervous systems that our greed and fear and ignorance arise out of. They are also empty. They're also not self. So fear, greed, anger, not really me, not really self. Compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, not really me, not really self. Again, more like the workings of an air conditioner thermostat than this love, this this interior being that I seem to love so much. So um, you can imagine that this is again kind of like looking over a cliff to have this thought. And uh, as I as I was working on this on this talk, it occurred to me that here I am, some 15 years after starting to sit at Appamata, finding myself blown around by my emotion. I do not want to accept this. I just don't want to. But as Maria read before, there is a possibility. Within this whole crazy system of things, 
to embrace the impossibility of knowing as liberation. And I, I'm going to be working on that, I think, probably for the rest of my life. Um, so here's my antidote that, I've, that I'm, I'm working on today. My life has always been and always will be a mystery to me. My relationships with all the people I love and all the people in the world and all the beings in the world will always be a mystery to me. Every time I find out something new and true, that mystery only expands. Sorry, my weekly report wanted to ring in just at this moment. Um, so far as I can tell, this is exactly what the Buddha taught in the Four Noble Truths. And that in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and in the interbeing that makes emptiness full of everything, I have resources to help me move forward with kindness, even generosity. Finally, that reminds me of the robe chant. So I want to conclude by asking you to say it with me. Okay. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, harmonizing all being. And with that, I welcome any questions or responses. Joan, I see your hand up. Hi, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the thermostat function. I wasn't sure I was getting it. Is it that it calls up things when needed, but they don't exist otherwise, or, or I didn't. So it, to, to me, the metaphor is apt because, um, you know, you're sitting in a room with a thermostat in it that through a, through a, a relatively simple mechanism uh, can sense what the temperature is. And if it falls below a certain threshold, it will turn the electricity on and, and make the air a different temperature, either, uh, you know, cooler or warmer. Uh, and then when it reaches the upper limit of that threshold, it, it shuts off. And um, uh, there, you know, your breathing, your heartbeat, your um, uh, desire to uh, get your hand off a hot stove. Those, those are automatic physical reactions that, again, as I say, have more in common with a simple mechanical thermostat than they do with any grand idea of what constitutes a human being. Does that make sense? Are you, are you, that's, uh, it, to me, this is a, a very compelling idea and, and perhaps not so to you. Uh, I, you know, if you have more questions about it I, that you want to elaborate at a different time, that would be great. Oh. And hi. Hey, thank you. So I get the, or I think I get the, um, that we're pieces. These things we call ourselves are parts of, I won't use that word because it has other meanings, but 
our bits are constellations of things that are uh, chemical and electrical um, and etc. Social, right, cultural. Right, yeah. right. But all of, <coughs> all of it is very chemical and it's all, we're, we're biologic beings. This is how, so even our memories and our retrieval of memories and our feelings about people and um, our greed and aversion are all functions of chemical reactions and electrical impulses. But I don't make the automatic leap from that to no self. It still seems to me that there is a, there is a cloud of things, pieces that constitutes this person. And it's not, I can't say that it's entirely unconnected to this person over here, but it seems like the fact of <coughs> The biology doesn't lead me directly to, well, there's nothing that is, I guess I can say I get, there's nothing that's abiding. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not an abiding self. But I guess for me, there's a self created every minute, a new self. It's just, I guess, that it's not um, eternal. Uh, uh, I I agree with everything you said, and uh, and that you know the, that we that there is this kind of um, I'm I'm blanking on the word for it, but the the way that uh, a, a new state can arise from constructions that are interacting with each other. What's the word for that? It's not consilience, but it starts with a C. Uh, something like that. So, and that, but again, it, at least in my experience, what, what is making the difference for me is just to take whatever is my experience right now and, and follow it out and see, is there an abiding sense? Is there an abiding self there? No, there's not. And I mean, that's been my experience over and over again. I, I, I still do not want to relinquish that feeling, of course. I mean, again, our biology is saying never relinquish that feeling, you know, keep together, protect yourself, eat, re you know, procreate, you know, do those things that biology demands. Um, but um, I, I can't, as the Buddha suggested, if you just experiment with it, you can't locate what, where that abiding self is. You can, and, and the, the, the ability to see it being created is itself um, an insight that is a valuable insight. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that the self doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that it, just as you said, it does not abide and will not abide and is subject to change, you know? 
depending on conditions. So, thank you for a great question. <coughs> Rosemarie, I see your hand up. Hi, Jill. Um, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I really like the idea that, um, let me see if I remember it now, um, that our uh, conditioning, these things that we don't like about ourselves, uh, things that we get hit with, we get triggered, um, but also that our compassion and our, um, our more cultivated parts are not us either. And that's very helpful because, um, you know, for me anyway, with Zen can become a self-improvement project, you know, and, and then it's okay, I'm not going to be the unskilled me, I'm going to be the skilled me. It's all me. So I, this is a beautiful idea. I want to really thank you for that. That's part of this uh, Buddhist brain, um, some of the concepts. So very page, helpful. Page 123 in the Kindle edition. There you go. <laughs> thank you so much. I love, I love this. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. Yeah, we have Genève next. Hi, Genève. Hi, Joel. It's lovely to see you. Um, I really love what you said about holding with affection without believing or judging. Um, and I think I'm not quite sure what you were, I don't, I'm not sure if you're talking about holding an emotion or holding a thought, but it feels like I could do that with everything. I could hold someone else's argument that I don't believe with affection and non-judgment. Um, and uh, I just wanted to let you know that's something I'll be, I'll be pondering in my zazen. Um, I'm curious, and I'm I'm very glad you talked about this book. I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm definitely going to read it. Um, this this these um, spindle cells. I've never heard of them, and you say that they are our most recent addition. But um, let's see if I heard you right, and that they allow us to feel what someone else is feeling vicariously. Right. You know, because we're seeing it or hearing it or reading it. Um, so um, that's always been huge in my brain. Like I, I, can, I can read in, in a novel that someone yawns and I will yawn, you know, I just can't. And when I'm translating or rather translating or interpreting something like torture um, or crimes against humanity or genocide, they're very real. You know, and I am one of those people who reads a novel and it's actually happening and I'm crying and I'm laughing. So when I'm, when I'm exposed to, you know, harm, I feel it physically in my body. Like I, I actually feel it happening to me. So my, my, my curiosity um, right now is about, because you mentioned that that is what leads us to compassion. And my understanding is that there's a difference between empathy and, and compassion and what I don't want to do is get stuck in the part, in the state where I'm just feeling victimized 
and I'm not actually doing anything helpful or being any helpful way. Um, how does, how does, I understand that empathy is necessary in order to get to compassion. That makes sense. Because if you couldn't imagine what someone else is feeling, it'd be hard to be compassionate about it. But how does one say neurologically um, move from the empathy to the compassion? And, and without shutting oneself down, without like, uh, like if, if I were a computer, it would be like pouring water on me and shorting out, you know, like um, that kind of thing. Because I've spent a lot of my life feeling what other people are feeling, but not actually doing or being any, any way that helps them. I mean, I also do and, 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 and ways that help people, but a lot of my life has been just being frozen by it. Genev, it's only recently that I found out from you what your work was translating these reports of horrific events, war crimes, torture, killing, etc. And that seems so overwhelming to me. And to, to, to know that you've been able to move forward in working in doing that work. Um, the, that indicates that to me that you that you have more resources than you are, are saying in this version of it right now. That you do have and have brought forward the the, the strength to keep moving forward, even though you feel this so viscerally, you know, and I, I can, I can imagine that I would be undone by that kind of work. Um, so I know that I, I personally cannot answer your question. Okay. Except, except to, to, to recognize what you're already doing. And that you can that you can embrace that, that you have that. It, it must be like sticking your hand in an anthill over and over again. But thank you for doing it. Thank you, Joel. I'm not seeing any further questions. So I just, oh, Nelda, okay. <clears throat> hey, Joel, hi everyone. Um, one of the reasons I raised my hand is just so that I could say hello to you and tell you how delighted I am to see you and grateful um, to you for this talk and, and many other ways you have taught and shared. Um, I, I'm, I'm stuck on one thing, uh, which is, and I'm delighted by the Dharma gate that's opened up as a result. As you said, this is going to be a lifelong contemplation. Um, and that is that all of those um, challenging experiences, whether they're bodily, emotional, or so on, that um, it has been my, my um, focus 
to reduce. Um, and it's also been my focus to increase all of those emotional and bodily experiences like compassion, like joy, like, you know, equanimity, um, to realize that they're all empty, you know? And so it, it, it makes me realize the extent to which I have been attaching to just one part of my life instead of embracing all of, of, of my life. So thank you, because uh, I love this practice. It's not just, you know, a dozen, 200,000 onion layers. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and so that that is another experience. And by the way, Amazon thanks you and all of Apamata for the number of books I have purchased <laughs> about our practice ever since I, I started attending uh, services at Apamata. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Here's, here's but one more. Um, and I, I delight, one last thing, it's just I delight that you brought to us how modern neuroscience has confirmed over and over again the ancient teachings. So I just find it fascinating that 2,500 years ago, someone or someone's knew what we are now, quote, proving to be true. I just, I, I delight in those things. So good to see you, Joel. Thank you for this talk. It's one I'll go back to again and again. Um, yeah, to explore my practice more deeply. Thank you. Thank you, Nilda. Thank you. I, I want to, I'm reminded <clears throat> in what you said, of a metaphor that Peg has talked about more than once over the years. <coughs> and I, I forget whom she's quoting, but another teacher who describes uh, the knowledge we gain in our practice as being like an island in the middle of the ocean. And the island is rimmed by ignorance uh, of, of the mystery, you know, that we, it's all mystery on the outside and we have a little bit of knowledge on the inside. And we gain some knowledge and the island expands but that means the periphery, the actual, you know, the actual circumference of our ignorance has also increased. So that's a, a, a metaphor that I take comfort in as well. And, and um, I thank you for the beautiful way in which you summarized what I was trying to say. Thank you. Darcy, hi. I'm so glad to see you. There we go. So um, it, it felt pertinent to me. So I thought I'd just say this. Um, I was, uh, I could really feel what you were talking about, Genev. And um, so it feels to me like I mean, certainly all of us, I think all of us who are drawn to, to this kind of study and practice are um, cultivating that awareness of, um, of oneness with all and no self. Um, but it seems like in this discussion, it's important also to say, you know what, we're also 
we're also conditioned selves. Like there's a middle way. There's there's one side, and then then we're also, you know, separate selves. You know, they're separate, and they're and we're uh, not separate. And I'm reminded of what uh, Roshi Joan Halifax has said in her work <coughs> on the edge um, that when we um, when we merge so much empathetically with another that we're sort of standing there frozen and she talks about specific experiences where this has happened to her that's where we go back to this middle and recognize that we also have um, that, that we're also not the same as that person we're suffering with, but we're, um, I'm probably not saying this very well, but that, that is her way of stepping back into compassion where you recognize you, you are not the same person or self as that one who is suffering. And that enables you to um, act in ways that might help. Anyway, I just sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I think we need reminders. We're studying this so deeply that we are, so, we are really our conditioned selves too. And uh, we're separate too. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you, Darcy. Um, I, I have a, just a, a, a response to what you said that that uh, that is a very powerful part of, of Joan Halifax's teaching. And and not only we are, are we not the person to whom our empathy is making us feel stuck. Or, or we're feeling stuck. There's a person over there, and and it's and, and we're feeling a reaction to their, to their tragedy, and and that reaction makes us feel stuck. We are also, not only the stuck part within ourselves. And this is what I was trying to to point to in, answer to the question that Genev talked about. I mean, here's Genev doing this bodhisattva practice. bringing to light things that could not be brought to light otherwise, even though it's that cost to her. She is showing that there's, that even though the part of us that feels stuck can feel so powerful, so overwhelming, so strong, that we're never just that. There's more, you know, I mean, to give a trivial example, I once, you know, went into to talk with Peg and had a, had what I now know as a classic discussion with a Zen teacher. It's like, Peg, my knees are killing me. And she said, Is, "Are there any parts of your body or mind that are not being killed by your knees? You know, how about the back of your hands? Is it feeling it in the same way? You know, or is there more that you can draw on?" 
And that, you know, that's a trivial example of, of the answer of an answer to a, a, a the very deep question that you're that you're pointing to and the, and the and the solution that you're pointing to. It's it amounts to the same thing, you know, in in Buddha's brain, they kind of emphasize that because of our physiology, because of the way we are structured in our evolutionary history, that any impulse toward um, um, higher things is swimming against a great tide. You know, that we are, that our bodies want us to do certain things to maintain itself and to protect the people in our in-group and to be aggressive to the people not in our in-group. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's a fact that we live with every moment. But it's also a fact that we have these other capacities that arise within us and and that they can lead us to greater happiness than only giving in to, to ignorance and greed and aversion, you know? And we can, we can, as the Buddha said, try it out. When it, you know, in the, in the, the discourse to the Kalamas, he said, just try it out. See if you feel uh, more joyous, more generous, more uh, compassionate. If you don't, that's the wrong path. If you do, keep working on it. That's it. So, thank you. Thank you, Joel. I like what you said about recognizing when you're feeling stuck in a part of yourself, too. That was helpful, mm -hmm. thanks. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say hello to people that I haven't said hello to in so long. Joan and Bill, hello. It's wonderful to see you. Kathy, thank you. Olivia, I'm just seeing your on-screen avatar, but thank you so much for being here and for for joining today. Um, Claudine, I actually got to talk to you uh, a little bit earlier this week, and, and Rosemarie, we've had some interactions recently, but it's I'm so grateful that you're here. and. I'm so grateful with the, the kindness and generosity with which every one of these wacky talks I give is met. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>